I was working through these verses this week, I realized that Paul lays out seven truths. So I'm going to bring a seven-point sermon to you today. So you better buckle up and be ready. Someone on the praise team revolted already. I told them where we were going today, and they said, nope, you got me for three, right? But that's it. I was like, I'm training you well, you know? But here's what I realized as I worked through this text. A lot of times I give you some big points, and then I give you some takeaways or some application. The reality is, is those things are merged here at the end of Paul's letter. Paul is being very practical. He's giving us some handles. He's giving us some insight in his situation and what God was doing through the churches that were supporting him and helping him. But at the same time, Paul is giving us some handles and he's showing us, I believe, the keys to contentment. So today, seven keys to contentment, or if you prefer your game-changing holiday survival guide from Philippians chapter four, because I believe if we would focus on these things, we would approach the busy, hectic weeks to come from a very different different place. And as Luke shared, as we led off worship with right where we left off last week, Paul does the same thing this week as well. So point number one for us is this key. Number one, we fight for joy with gratitude. We fight for our joy in Christ with gratitude. As I told you last week, Paul writes this little letter to the Philippians as he's under house arrest in Rome, awaiting his verdict. His circumstances were less than ideal. He didn't know if this was it for him, if God was finished with him, if he was about to meet Christ, to live as Christ, to die is gain, Paul says. But also in this moment, he had needs. As he's languishing, as he's waiting, there was no guarantee of when the verdict was going to come. He didn't have resources. He didn't have means. So he was dependent on the outside, on other churches, on other brothers and sisters in Christ to provide for his needs. They didn't give you anything when you sat in a Roman prison cell. Instead, it was your family, it was your friends who would supply the things that you needed. And so as Paul sits there, he recognizes that he is grateful, that he rejoiced in the Lord greatly, because once again, you renewed your care for me. We know in 2 Corinthians 8, a couple of years back, that the Philippi church had provided for Paul. So it's been a couple of years. They didn't have FaceTime, they didn't have email, they didn't have any way to communicate in those days. So what this communicates to Paul, Paul is, hey, you care about me. And I love the way he says this. I rejoiced in the Lord because of what you have done. What a beautiful calibration of how our gratitude should be as well. We need to recognize that God uses our family, our friends, our church members, our life group friends, right, to bless us. But we recognize that ultimately that blessing is from the Lord, that the Lord works in and through other people. And so that posture, what a great time of the year, right? To, to look at Paul's example and to notice that we should be grateful. And one of the ways that we defend for, one of the ways we fight for our joy in a world that tries to suck the joy out of us is to recognize how grateful we are for what God has provided. So this was, uh, the occasion of this was there was this financial gift given to meet Paul's needs, but Paul recognized that it is a deeply theological act to give thanks to God for what he has done through others. So it's an opportunity for us to follow Paul's example and tell somebody this week that you thank God for how God has used them to bless your life. Yeah, maybe it's financially, maybe it's provision, but maybe it was a word of encouragement. 
Maybe it was uh, the mentorship. Maybe it was a pouring into you. Whatever it is, you need to be grateful. I ran across a little study written by Janice Kaplan. She's the editor of People Magazine. She was given a Templeton Foundation grant to do some research into what brings people joy or happiness. She published it in a study called The Gratitude Diaries. And here was what she found. Gratitude has the highest connection to mental health and happiness of any of the personality traits studied. Let me repeat that. Gratitude has the highest connection to mental health and the happiness of any of the personality traits studied. So last week we talked about this idea, right, of in an anxious world that we find peace. Well, one of the pathways to that peace is to be grateful is to literally sit down, and she called her book The Gratitude Diaries because she found the best practice was to keep a little diary, keep a little list. Anytime she was anxious, anytime people began concerned, overwhelmed by their situation, they would simply stop and say, you know what, instead of focusing on the negative, let me make a list of all of the things that I'm grateful for. What a healthy discipline that is. And for us, the foundation of that, right, is more than in just research. It's in God's word because it's modeled throughout scripture, the idea of being grateful. It's captured in a classic hymn that I sang growing up as a child. You may have too. It goes something like this. When upon life's billows, you are tempest tossed. When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost. What do we do, church? Count. Your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. You see, it reminds you of God's faithfulness. It reminds you of how God has worked. And so with the Apostle Paul, right, we can fight for our joy with gratitude. What a great week to start your gratitude journal. What a great week to thank others in person the way Paul was here, right? To be intentional about praising others for how God has used them in your life. Number two, Paul specifically says we need to pursue the rare jewel of contentment. The rare jewel of contentment. Now, I will argue that contentment is difficult in any age. As a matter of fact, the Puritans from a couple hundred years ago, they probably wrote some of the best works on the theme of contentment that have ever been published. And that was 200 years ago. If it was difficult to be content 200 years ago, just imagine how challenging it is now. Years ago, I ran across a little ad in Preaching Magazine. I know some of you are wondering, am I that big a nerd that I read a magazine for preachers? Yes, is the answer. And such publication does exist. And I ran across an ad for a seminary, but the ad caught my attention. I cut it out. I pasted it on my bulletin board above my desk. It hangs there every week to remind me of this. It says, this week, your people will see 1,754 ads promising them lasting happiness. You have 30 minutes in a Bible. What are you going to do with it? But I want you to think about that for a minute. This week, and you can argue, right? It's only accelerated during the holidays. This week, you will be peppered on your social media feeds, on your car radio, everywhere you look with advertisements. 1,754 of them on average, all doing what? Telling you to be discontent telling you that your car's not new enough, that your clothes aren't trendy enough, that your cosmetics aren't shiny enough, whatever it is, right? So all of these things are designed to tempt us to be discontent. Why? So we'll open up our wallets so that we'll pull out the debit card and we will spend money that we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't even know. 
because that's the way marketing works. And so I want you to keep that in mind that, you know, up against this message that Paul is saying of contentment comes the constant drumbeat in our culture of you need more. You need something else. You really are looking for something else to satisfy you. And so what we have to recognize is that contentment is something that has to be cultivated. It has to be learned. What does Paul say? I have learned the secret of contentment. Fascinating that he puts it that way. Paul says, right, he he recognizes that contentment is not in his circumstances. In whatever circumstances I find myself, I can't look for contentment there. I can't find peace there. Instead, he notes, I know how to make do with little. We've all been there before, having a point of need. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's emotional, whatever it is. We've all had that moment when we were in need. But Paul also says there's a unique challenge when we have a lot, when we have abundance. We know a lot about uh, Paul's deprivation from different times in ministry, how he was outcast, how he was physically tortured sometimes, how he was run out of cities, how the message of the gospel was rejected and, and people rejected him along with it. We don't know as much about his abundance, but we do know that there were times that he was able to dine in the home of wealthy church members. I'm sure there were times in his travels that he enjoyed a a moment, a sunrise, a sunset. But the reality is, is we all have these moments in life. In some moments, we're struggling. In other moments, we're taken care of. But Paul says, no matter the moment, I've mastered, I've learned the secret of contentment. And this word secret was loaded in Paul's day. There was a number of religions that were called mystery cults in Paul's day. They were all about finding the secret knowledge, the secret path to happiness. A lot of this stuff was recycled in a book that came out about 15 years ago called The Secret. It was just slick packaging put to ancient humanistic philosophy, basically saying that if you envision something and if you go after it, you can have whatever you want. The reality is, is the only people that that book made happy were the authors who sold millions of copies. It didn't work for anybody else. Why? Because it doesn't work that way. That's not the way that life is. Paul is saying the secret that I have found is this. It's verse 413, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The way that I can be content okay if it's a season of plenty or if it's a season of little. The way that I can be okay in abundance or in need is to recognize that it's the source, the source of my strength is Christ who strengthens me from the inside out. Now let's go ahead and be honest. This is also one of the most abused and misused verses of the Bible. I will confess that as a 13-year-old, I put Philippians 4.13 on my high tops, hoping it would make me dunk the basketball, all right? True confession, right? I can do all things through Christ who can strengthen me. No, you can't, Jay. You can't jump, okay? That's just the reality. And so we need to be careful that we keep this verse in context. What Paul is saying is, I can do all of these things. If you wonder where that kind of contentment comes from where that kind of peace originates, where that kind of joy is. The reality is, is that it comes from Christ, not from any of us. It's something we have to learn. It's something that we have to cultivate. So contentment is not self-sufficiency. Paul isn't just giving us an inspirational statement here to put on our t-shirts and our sneakers and to cross-stitch on our pillows. That's not what he's trying to do. 
What he's trying to lead us to is to recognize Christ's sufficiency. That what we need to be content is Christ. We have to learn, all of us, that Jesus is enough. And recognizing that, that leads us to our third point this morning, which is this. The reality that we need to invest in gospel partnership. Paul recognizes that what he's receiving now is a result of those relationships that he's cultivated with the church at Philippi. He loves this church. As I told you last week in chapter one, he starts the letter with, man, I thank God every single time I remember you because of your partnership in the gospel. It's where we get the verse, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You see, Paul believed that. This wasn't just this, it wasn't some kind of prosperity gospel preacher, right? Who was just looking for churches to send him money. He saw them as co-laborers in the gospel, not just consumers of what he was preaching and teaching. As a matter of fact, this word for partnership means two people going in the same direction in deep relationship with one another. And so what a beautiful picture we have here in the gospel of the fact that we get to choose where we invest for the sake of what God's doing. Mission work is hard. Paul had suffered in Philippi. The church had seen it there firsthand. He had been run out of Thessalonica, but the church at Philippi had been there from the start supporting, praying, giving. And so what they were doing is they were investing in his ministry, which in turn was an investment in church multiplication. This is the time of year in which we have to choose what we're going to give and who we're going to give it to. For a lot of us, right, we think about gifts, and rightfully so. We have kids, grandkids, friends, family members, right? And we want to bless them. We want to have a good time. But some of you right now are having to like clear out toys to make room for what? More toys. And there's nothing wrong with giving your kids some toys, but that's not an investment that's going to endure. Instead, think this season about how you're going to invest in gospel partnership. Brandon already told you about our e-bulletin. If you just scroll down, there's a couple of great places to click. One of those is our holiday service guide. There are links in that guide to all kinds of ministries where you can invest your time and your talent. Gospel ministries that we partner with. Uh, Ministries like The Well, ministries like Hope's Bridge, working with vulnerable kids. Uh, Ministries like 431, working with women in need. English is a second language. There's a list of mission journeys there where you can go globally and partner and encourage our partners. So here's my point. This year, Before you start making out all of your lists, and this is important, this is one of those get ahead of the holiday things, sit down as a family. Decide what's the investment that you're going to make in the gospel and allow that to be the first gift of your holiday season. Because as we teach our kids very simply, whose birthday are we getting ready to celebrate? It's Jesus's. So doesn't it make sense that he would get the first gift? And so the reality for us is that it helps recalibrate our hearts and our minds. I think our giving and our receiving to recognize that we have truly put the first priority first. And that's what Paul is acknowledging in the gift of the church at Philippi. And that leads us very naturally to our fourth point this morning, which is this, is to grow in the grace of giving. I love what Paul says in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but the profit that's increasing to your account. Translation, it's not really about the money. It's not. Paul says, I appreciate it. I'm grateful for it. I have gratitude around it. And I love the way that you guys have been faithful. But what I'm really excited to see is how it is growing you spiritually. Because just like Jesus, 
Paul understood that giving was a sign of spiritual maturity. Just like last week, we looked at a section from Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Flip over to Matthew chapter 6 with me again, verse 19, where Jesus talks about our stuff. He talks about our possessions. Because Paul understood that how we give our money is an indicator of what's in here, of what's inside of our hearts. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus taught us, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. And here it is. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, the way that we give our posture towards our generosity is an indicator of our heart, the condition of our heart. And that's why Paul says, right? I love it. I appreciate that you gave me, you know, this gift, this financial gift to help me, but it's not the gift I'm after. It's your spiritual maturity, the profit that is increasing to your account. Translation, you're storing up treasures for the kingdom when you invest in the ministry of the gospel. So we need to grow in the grace of giving. And then number five, we are to be a living sacrifice if we're going to pursue contentment. I love how Paul frames this. He says, I've received everything in full and I have an abundance and I am fully supplied. Having received everything that I need, that my friends is integrity in the gospel. Paul is not some prosperity gospel preacher saying, but keep sending your checks because I need a bigger house. Keep sending me your money because I need a faster jet. Keep sending me money, right? Paul says, hey, thank you. You have provided what I need and I praise God for it because I recognize that it's an act of worship. He talks here, it's like a, a fragrant offering that reaches all the way back to Genesis chapter eight, where after the flood, Noah did a burnt offering for God. It said the aroma was pleasing for him. It's a reminder that every time with every act, as we give of our time, talent, treasure, and testimony, it's worship. Those are acts of worship. And so our lifestyles should be worship. Paul says, right in Romans chapter 12, In light of the gospel, in light of everything Paul's taught about the gospel, here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your bodies and make them living sacrifices to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, to be a living sacrifice. And when you live that way, that is like an aroma that is pleasing to God. I don't know about you, but there are smells that I find pleasing. I'm a guy. I love the smell of a barbecue grill. I love the smell of fresh cut grass because it means that chore is done for the week. And I love baseball, so I like to think for a moment. My backyard looks a little bit like a baseball field, right? It's got the lines in it. It looks, looks really, really good for that moment. I love the smell of fresh brewed coffee. There are smells that I don't love. My 13-year-old son's feet after he takes off his basketball shoes, right? I mean, it's unbelievable. I had to call my parents and apologize. Mom and dad, I'm sorry, I didn't realize how bad that smell was growing up. But here's what the Bible says. Paul teaches us that when we live our lives as sacrifices, when we take everything we do and we think to ourselves, this is an act of worship, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I make my choices, those things rise to the throne room of God. And he's pleased when we're givers. Why? Because we're reflecting his image. 
We're reflecting his very character, who he is. And it meets real needs, just like Paul had a real need. And at the same time, it's an act of worship. How cool is that? And that leads us to number six. This is that this is the promise in this passage that we can trust God to provide for our needs. Let's be honest, but not our greeds. Our world leads us to be discontent. Our world tempts us to say what we want is what we need, but there's a difference. And so the promise is clear. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You cannot outgive God. God has given us everything we need, and let's be honest, then some. So you can trust in that promise. And I know there are some of you, it is a season of need. Maybe that's financial. For a lot of you, it's physical. A lot of people going through health issues right now. For some of you, it's emotional. Going through pain, going through grief, going through loss. There are a lot of needs that we have. The good news of the gospel is this, is that Jesus is enough to meet those needs. That Jesus is what we need and then some. He overflows our hearts into abundance. And so there are actually some of you who are in a season of abundance. God has been good to you. It's not just financial sometimes, it's opportunity, it's promotions, it's the opportunity to have a larger platform, right? The question is, is how are you going to use that for his glory? Will you be faithful in much as you were in little? Will you pray just as hard in your abundance as you did at your place of need? Wherever you're at, know this, God is the one who provides it all and he will supply all that you truly need. And that leads us to our seventh and final point. And it's this, is that we need to treasure Christ above all. That's what we need as we enter the holiday season. That's what we need always in every season. Paul ends with doxology. I love it. Now to our God and father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's be honest, most of us have not experienced Paul's level of hardship. We've not been persecuted. We've not been put in jail for what we believe, right? We've not been tortured. But on the other hand, most of us were not named Bezos or Zuckerberg or Gates, right? We don't have that kind of abundance either. But in the gospel, in Christ Jesus, we learn to be content because the gospel is sufficient. Jesus is is enough. And so probably the best pro tip I could give you as we enter this holiday season is this contentment isn't found in the perfect Thanksgiving meal. It's not found in the perfect gift underneath the tree. It's found in the sufficient work of Jesus on the cross. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so it's why this morning we're going to come to the table, the Lord's Supper table, before we seat ourselves around the Thanksgiving table later this week. Because we have much to be grateful for in the gospel. We can recognize that we can be content because God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. So I want you to make your seat an altar as you prepare your heart, as our deacons prepare to come. Lay down your Bible, your journal, your phone, whatever you need to do. Because I'm going to ask you this morning to ask the Spirit to reveal where you are discontent in your heart and in your life. Allow the Spirit to reveal that today. 
And then allow the truth that we've talked about to wash over you. That the grace of Jesus is sufficient. That God supplies all of our needs. That our first and greatest need was to be made right with God. And God made a way for that to be possible through the cross. And so this morning we take the Lord's Supper, this tangible reminder that Jesus commanded us to do in remembrance of him so that we would never forget that the source of our contentment is Christ, that what we do, we do in the one who strengthens us. So confess, pray, and in just a moment, the elements will come by. I wanna remind you that if you belong to the Lord Jesus, well, then this moment belongs to you as well. If you don't yet know Jesus as your savior, then you can politely decline. and It would be our greatest joy to talk to you about what this moment means to show you in God's word the minute that the service is over. If you're at home watching online, grab those elements and prepare them. As the tray comes by, be sure that you take both cups, they're cupped together, and then I'll lead us through the taking of the elements in just a moment. But let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you that Paul could in essence always say, follow me as I follow Christ. As he fought for joy, as he was filled with gratitude, as he learned contentment in all circumstances. So Lord Jesus, we recognize those are the things that we need the most. So we confess to you that we're tempted to run after all the things the world tempts us with. That we're tempted to be discontent because we're not looking to the deep resource of you. And so Lord Jesus, would you teach us and remind us in this moment what it cost so that we could know peace, so that we could know grace and love, and so that we could be content in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Be with us now, Lord Jesus, as we come to the table and partake of the elements. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.